This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Cody, are you, um, I noticed you were drinking water tonight. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm just tired. I've got tired a... Tired of drinking uh, whiskey? What's that? No, 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 no. Just like... I want to go to bed tired. Um, I have a three-month-old lab puppy who, for the first six weeks we had him, went to bed at 8 and got up at 6.30, which was just amazing. And uh, about 10 days ago, developed a new wake-up time of 3.45. And I don't trust wake-up time. I, yeah, I know. And that's, I have about as much like for your wake up time as I do this three month old puppy right now. And I, and, uh, I don't, you know, he's, he hasn't messed in the house in two weeks, but I don't trust him. And I don't trust him outside yet either to not just wander down the mountain. And, uh, so I'm five days since I got back from Belize into getting up at three forty five in the morning. And then it doesn't matter how tired I am. I'm up till 11 11 30 every night and it's not adding up well right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i believe that a whiskey i might fall out of this chair and just go to sleep right in the middle of this deal so i went with water 
I think that uh, Jay, you might have even texted me at like six o'clock in the morning saying, why have you been awake yeah. for two hours before? Yeah, that's exactly right. No, you're one of the only people I know I can call at 6 a.m. Hey, there is a very There's few like band of individuals. Is, if somebody if somebody calls me at 6 a.m., you work wake the, you open the door for me to call you at 6 a.m. <laughs> yeah. So, well, there's only like three or four guys that I do. Robbie's also one of the few people that you can't call after 8.30 p.m. Well, that is true. <laughs> so Completely useless. Yeah. Yeah, the do not disturb goes on at 9 o'clock, and I'm gone. Yeah. Yeah, I have my do, start, uh, do not disturb, I think, at 9 also. Just because I don't want – because I'll still get phone calls from people after that. So. Exactly. You got to get the rest. Yeah. Well, um, we got a special roundup today because obviously we have a special guest with us. Uh, we'll introduce you, Jay, here in a little in a little bit. Um, but we've got a little bit of admin to do, like uh, we typically want to, in terms of giving everyone an update on what's going on in the Blood Origins world. Um, a little known fact is that we actually have a Blood Origins shop. We have shirts for sale. Leiden Decken, did I send you any shirts? No, of course not. You don't send me anything. Damn it. Oh, shit. Okay, we'll have to fix that now. What size are you? Triple XL? How about extra small? <laughs> I will send you an extra small shirt, <laughs> and you must model it for me. <laughs> no, I will. Unfortunately, you will, you may, and you I will see it. You may lose followers, but hey, you know. What are friends for, right? True, true. Uh, but we've got some cool shirts in the shop. We've got some cool designs. Uh, we're thinking about doing some custom shirts, sort of limited run custom shirts. We haven't quite figured out the hats yet, but uh, yeah, give us, uh, give our shop a look. We've got some really cool designs, some shirt designs there. And uh, obviously every purchase you make supports what we do, Cody. Yeah, exactly. Do that, please, people, because that's a thing. It's a thing that I was tasked with a couple of months ago, and uh, I will say that I didn't intentionally not do much to promote the shop yet. It's just there's been other things to work on and promote. Um, but yeah, we, we got a cool shop with with some cool stuff there, and uh, go check it out. I mean, you know, what else you got to do at work? It's tough to find good help nowadays. <laughs> Talking about good help. <laughs> the supporters program. Supporters program. Uh, we are getting very close to July. Obviously, we will announce the June winners, and we have a hunt, a quail hunt. And unbelievably, and I don't even know if I've told him this or not, but July, we have an amazing giveaway package. Like, it's my birthday month. It's the month that I was like, it's the middle of the year. Why don't we do – is it your birthday month too, Jay Ladendegger? Yeah. That is – it's an amazing month. It's an amazing month. And so we decided to put amazing prizes up for grabs. We've got some really custom art. We've got a custom rifle sling from a leather company in Montana that I think is going to use bison for the rifle sling. We have a hunt to give away in Laredo, Texas for Havelina with, with Leyden Decker Safaris. Hey. Coincidental. Nope. Yeah, it is coincidental. I guess I paid for this spot in a way. <laughs> <laughs> But we got a, cool, a, a number of cool things. We're just gonna we're just gonna load the deck 
with prizes in July and really make a big push. And it's just for the cost of a cup of coffee a month, three bucks, four bucks, five bucks, whatever you want to give. Or 50. Or 50. If you drink really expensive coffee. Million. A million. A million. Wow. Absolutely. Was that a hey, pledge? You, that was a pledge, I believe. Tax deductible. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. And you get a receipt from our platform. <laughs> Legally. Legally tax deductible. <laughs> it's real. Keywords. We have also um, recently announced our new program called the Conservation Club. The Conservation Club is essentially the supporters program, but for brands and companies. And if you want to just boil it down simplistically, a lot of people want to put their money where their mouth is, support conservation, support what we do, support the fight, and your money will go exactly to that. It'll help us find and drive uh, to good conservation projects around the world. And uh, we had, we announced two, we had two, when we announced the Conservation Club, we had two, two companies that came on board, Montana Knife Company and Spartan Precision out of, uh, out of the UK. That was 24 hours ago, right, Cody? Uh, 48 hours ago, we announced it, yeah. 48 hours ago. Right now, we are up to six members of the Conservation Club. We've had four others. And amazingly, like we've got a coffee company out of Australia that's come on board. We've got an outfitter out of Oklahoma that's come on board. We've got an engineering company out of New Zealand that's gotten on board. Unbelievable, right? So it just shows to the, the global fingerprint of what Blood Origins is and what we're trying to do. Um, what's next? What else do we have, Cody? Um, we just added this yesterday. Um, see how it goes. I'm not sure what the uh, results are, but for all of you out there that have ever heard of Amazon.com, now if you go to smile.amazon.com, it will ask you to choose your charity and Amazon, no, stop. At that point, choose Blood Origins. And then you go shopping on smile.amazon.com and Amazon will make a donation for the dollar spent. Um, it's called the it's called the Amazon Smile program. It's a pretty cool program. I mean, I know everyone's got an opinion about Amazon, but kudos to them. They've given away over $293 million to this program. And we don't need all of that. We want a little chunk of that $293 million to come our way. And all you got to do is uh, go to smile.amazon.com and choose Blood Origins as your charity, and they will give us. Uh, it's just you, then you just shop on Amazon. It doesn't cost you anymore. Um, it doesn't eliminate your Prime benefits if you're Amazon Prime, um, and it just uh, another way for us to try and keep the lights on around here and keep the ball moving forward. Yeah, half a percent of all purchases through that would uh, come back to us. And then lastly. We have some conservation projects on the horizon. We mentioned this on the last podcast. We're going to announce the next conservation project. And um, we're going to announce that in about a week, I believe. I've got the graphic set up and ready to go. It's fully funded, by the way. Um, actually, the next three projects that we are going to drop are already fully funded. So we're very pleased about that. And again, when we talk about the Conservation Club and the Supporters Program and people ask, where does your money go? 
the money goes to finding these conservation projects, doing the planning work behind them, the logistics, the scheduling, and then getting them funded. And so we're going to announce three uh, projects. All of them are, are really big. One of them is actually quite exciting because I don't believe anything like this has ever been done before. And so, um, yeah, couldn't be more excited. Big things coming. 100%. Very cool feeling to have uh, the next three funded and already be worrying about four projects out. That's right. Well, that's admin done. Sharp shop to the point. Uh, and now I would like to formally, since he's already berated me on the podcast already, formally introduce our guest tonight. I... Uh, I, I like to respectfully call him my ginger magnificence, but uh, his name is Jade Leidendecker, and uh, he's from Laredo, Texas. And um, I'll let, well, Jay, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm a mute. No, Jay Leidendecker, uh, Laredo, Texas, born and raised, been a professional hunter since uh, 99. You know, just kind of traveled the world, gypsied for quite a few years and decided to slow down and now living in Reno and trying to sling a little dirt here and there. But we're uh, still very uh, active. I'm still very active in all in the hunting community and and uh, conservation aspect and advocacy more than anything these days. And that's where I like to experience so much internationally and kind of try to share it with the world, you know? Yeah. Well, I would say one of your claim to fame is you did a couple of Instagram lives with a guy called Phil Macero, right? Yeah. Hey, one of my buddies. I am constantly blown away whenever I get onto one of those. Like, I barely understand what, like, the 0.270 of a bullet means. <laughs> yeah. But you I guys mean, got into the weeds, man. Oh, we'll, we'll get into the weeds. And, and Phil, and you know, and, and I, I never tell this to him to his face. So I hope, hopefully you, you stop recording this second, right? But, but uh, he is probably one of the most intelligent human beings I've ever met in my life. Okay. And his capacity to retain knowledge and, and just gun knowledge overall and ballistic knowledge is just, is unreal. And, 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 you know, not for not, I, I, I've been around some very interesting characters, some very knowledgeable characters, and he is top three for sure uh, in, in, in that department when it comes to overall gun knowledge. I mean, I called him the other day and I said, hey, Phil, you know, I got a friend, you know, gotten himself into a 400, you know, uh, Holland. I was like, man, I, I'm just not sure. Oh, yeah, it's great gun. <laughs> I was like, I've never even, you know, I've, I've hunted overseas for years and years and years, and I've never seen a 400 Holland once over there. And uh, he rattled it off. I mean, as quick as that, you know, and and it was interesting because then there was a lot of discussion thereafter about uh, we just randomly saw it online on uh, and we were kind of just pinning each other back and forth on it. So, you know, it, it, it so was funny. How long were you a professional hunter in in African bots? And then Botswana, my career was fairly short. So it was four years there, uh, one year in Mozambique. Um, by the time I had to complete apprenticeship, everything, you know, it, it was it was very uh, stunted. So, um, 
but I still, I mean, I maintain a license. I've, I've had my license yep. since yep. 2009 or 2010. Um, so here what we was, are. What would you, what would you say your, what was your big game caliber? What was yours? Mine? I, I had a 500 Jeffrey from day one. Yeah. And, and, and that was by design more than anything after having hunted significant months of dangerous game in varying countries and seeing so many different professional hunters utilize different cartridges and what was favorite, what were their favorites and what weren't their favorites. And, and, um, my favorite in seeing so many different characters use so many different calibers was in the end of 500 Jeffrey. So randomly the year before I got my license, I had a guy call me and he says, Hey Jay, you know, um, I know you need a big gun and I'm, um, this thing just kicks too much, and I don't know if you'd be interested. And I said, "What caliber is it? 500 Jeffrey." And I thought, "Huh, you know, you know, sure, I'm interested, but you know, we'll. I don't have the money right now. Right. I'll make a swinging deal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave it to me, and and you know, 150 rounds of ammo. I'll put it to you this way: 150 rounds of ammo and a rifle for what the ammo cost. Okay. Wow. And. So that, yeah, that's what I started my career with and, and continued with. And I mean, to this day, whenever I do decide to do a safari or do take on a safari, I carry that rifle with me. Cody, what's the biggest caliber gun you shot? Uh, shoulder fired the Barrett 50, 50 caliber. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you were in Africa, you didn't shoot any of the 375s or 458s that they probably would have had in camp? No, it, and it was all just planes game. Everything with 300 Win Mag. Okay. Which is a great, which is a great round. Great. It's a great planes game rifle. That's for sure. It's a great North American rifle too. I mean, it's a, I, I, I love the, I was a, I was a sniper in the Marine Corps and, and I can get actually with very little knowledge, but I appreciate a good ballistics discussion. Um, I also think it's one of the biggest overthought and barrier creating things Without question. for, for new hunters. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that everything in between about a 270 and a 300 wind mag is a pretty good North American rifle. Now, I mean, obviously a two, a moose with a 270 is, is crazy. And, a antelope with a 300, I might still do that, but, um, I love the conversation. I get asked a lot by people wanting to get into it. Um, and it seems like they've spent, they don't even own a rifle, but they've studied ballistics for 50 hours on the internet. And I think it's the most overthought thing on that end. While it's a great discussion, once you just get into favorites. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a seven millimeter guy now. And uh, I, I, I take my seven millimeter to do anything in North America. Um, but you know, it's a it's a go deep in the pub with that conversation. That's for sure. Yeah, it can go real deep. And I, seven millimeters also one of my favorite North American calibers. And I've used one overseas. I've used one here. And, you know, taking all kinds of species of game with it, and it's it is one of my favorites. Right there with you on that. Well, I, do you want me to just step out of the room for a second, and you guys just talk calibers? No. No, we actually yes. Yeah, yeah, I was wrong. I do. 
Jay, Jay, we just met, right? And the and right. the the listeners don't. Uh, I can see you. The, the listeners of our we don't put this out in a video format, but you seem like you have a really good sense of humor. So for like three minutes now, I've been trying to work up the courage to ask if there's ever Zach Galifianakis references. Oh, every now and then, yeah. Okay. okay. That, you know, my my even though it's not true, my common response is uh, yes, but I have more money than he does, which is totally untrue, but it's. It's a, I go for the shock factor. <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean it in any way. I mean, I, I, anything bad you think of Zach, I didn't mean to imply that, but I can't get over the fact that you, there is a resemblance. Yeah. So, Jay, in terms of length of time that you spent in Africa, how long did you spend there? From 99 to 2013, um, I spent given that the 99th 2004 no 2005 i graduated college um was three months a year so my okay. summers i would spend in 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 africa and yep. then um once that concluded then i started spending six months six months a year and then that's when i ended up in botswana is at the same time so yeah yeah you know and um i went to botswana and then that's where all all that story of my life began can we do like the and and robbie you get all anxious because i'm bringing up things that weren't on his little typed out list that he made but can, can we do the condensed version <laughs> of how hard it is for an american to become a ph is that oh that's I mean, a good it's, question that's it's a, a completely question. honest question i have no idea if it's hard or easy or if it depends on the country yeah it's actually a very that is a very good question because it goes beyond the. It goes beyond, in my opinion, of course, and I lived it. Was it goes beyond what you need to do and need to be capable of, right? So you're you're also battling, um, how do I say, cultural differences? You know, being accepted from being from you know, not from essentially here. where the clients come from, right? So you got to be go from where clients come from to one of us, you know, and that. I think transition, uh, although although easy, I mean, not easy. It's also easy as long as you're just fully committed. And it, it's like anything, anything I do, I just fully commit myself to any of it. But on top of that, it takes years of experience. Um, in or especially when you're talking dangerous game, you know, and in in wild countries versus, you know, some of the countries that are a little more, that are a little more. Uh, uh, for lack of a better term, a little more regimented, right? So, you know, you go to wild Africa into, you know, Botswana or Tanzania or one of those countries, all bets are off the table. So you need to be very well versed in mechanics and uh, rifles and just problem solving in general and, and being able to utilize anything that's around you in order to get out of a situation. And, and, that I think the single most important part of becoming a professional hunter is problem solving, right? Pass the hunting and trophy judging and all that, and be willing to take on whatever task is before you, no matter what time, no matter what it could be. I mean, it, it, there is just it, it goes so far past the hunting. Now, in your in the apprenticeship stage, you know, my my apprenticeship was very regimented almost military, militaristic, you know, where 
um, you know, whatever, whatever the professional hunter wanted at whatever time of day had to be done. Wash my truck two o'clock in the morning. Sure. You know, be happy about it. Yeah. You know, whatever, I mean, whatever it was, it just had to be done. You know, you didn't question, you didn't anything. And, and, you know, well, rightly so, you know, because in my, in my opinion, looking back at those, during that time, it was difficult. You, you know, hours were, I mean, 20 hour days, you know, and you're just getting beat down physically. Um, But I wouldn't have it any other way. Looking back now, looking on it, though, in the end of the day, you have to be able to take on any task and you have people's lives in your hands as a professional hunter. And not only yourself, least of all yourself. I mean, you, you know, as your professional hunter, when he takes that on that job on, he's the, he's the first one that will give his life for his crew. You know, whether it's his tracker, whether it's his client, whoever it may be in the lineup, he is, he will be the first, you know? And, um, you know, and 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 we go. You have to always remember that 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 is. You know, after having also, you know, then had apprentices, you kind of instill that in them. It's like, hey, man, you know, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's fun, right? And it's great, and you know, all of it's wonderful, and we get to do some things that nobody ever gets to see. But at the end of the day, as beautiful as all this is, is equally as dangerous. You know, and. Uh, I think it's just important that that uh, that you know everybody understands that. And yeah, it is difficult for an American to, to you know to kind of go back to your question. It's difficult for an American to get there, but it's not impossible. And I and I've 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 told that to a lot of youngsters that have come to me and asked me how to how to do it or you know do that. And I said, well, first thing you do is you buy a plane ticket and you show up in Africa. That's step one, you know. And then step two, you go and say, I'm here. I'll work for free. You know, and I mean, and that's that's the way you kind of got to get your foot in there. If you want it bad enough, you can achieve anything you want. I mean, I don't know how many times I was told I'd never become a professional hunter in Botswana, and here we are, eleven years later. You know, or mm-hmm. twelve years later. And Jay, do you think the appy ship is still is the same today, or do you think it's gotten softer, or do you think it's about the same? I think it's about the same. Yeah, I think it would be about the same, and I, and I would. You know, and I think it, it, well, I know it varies greatly um, from company to company, country to country. I worked for Johan Kalitz, which we were the premier elephant hunting company in the world at the time. And, and um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you know, I never forget one professional hunter. I used to always say, Mr. Smith, you know what I mean, to our client. And after about, second or third day he grabbed me on this is the first year of my my apprenticeship in botswana he said you don't call him mr smith anymore you call him doug okay and i thought you know well it's kind of disrespectful because he's so much older right and i said why is that he said because you're going to be the man that if something happens to me you're going to be the man to, to to take care of everybody and he needs to, be able to respect you he needs to listen to you and you are number two in this whether he was like, right now you're the la- you're the bottom of the totem pole. But if something were to happen to me, guess who comes to the immediate from the bottom of the totem pole all the way to the top, and that's mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was I thought that was very interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't think I don't think a lot of it has changed, and it should be difficult. You need to get the ones who 
have the romance idea of it out because um, they, they have people's lives in their hands. Yep, for sure. You know, for sure. Well, we're glad to have you here because today, as our typically we do on the roundup, we've gathered a bunch of topics for the week and they all happen to be African topics. <laughs> and so, uh, shocker, shocker, that we might have planned this this way. No, we don't plan the news. The news is the news. So, <laughs> and, we, we, and we have planned you being on here two and a half weeks ago. So, mm -hmm. just pure coincidence, Jay. It's no conspiracy here. It's pure coincidence. Magic brew. Magic brew. So we're going to lead off with something that has impacted Africa, which is the very first piece of legislation that has been passed in the United States, SB 925 out of the state of Connecticut, which is the iconic African Species Act. They actually called it Cecil's Law, and it got passed. Six African species, uh, elephant, both rhinos, uh, lion, leopard, and giraffe are now uh, law if you, uh, that it'll be a misdemeanor for you to import and possess any of those animals. Now, there's a technicality in there. There's an exemption in there, which is tied to federal exemptions on all species. And it so happens that ESA and CITES are both federally mandated uh, by the US Fish and Wildlife Service. So in fact, the law has no teeth in terms of what it can do. However, it sets a bad precedence. So let me ask you, Jay, you were in Africa, I have been in Africa, Cody has been in Africa, but you have been in places where dangerous game like elephants have been hunted. What would happen to these areas if, and, and you've got a great example in Botswana because you were in areas that hunted elephant, they did not hunt elephant for quite some time, and now they get to hunt elephant again. What would happen if... You know, what, what happened in that scenario there from going from hunting elephants to not being able to hunt elephants to now being able to hunt elephants? Well, you know, something that we all tend to forget, especially as, as Americans, is the vast majority of us, and, you know, I would say the vast, vast, vast majority that will ever listen to this podcast. We're on a global scale. We have at least three people that listen to this podcast, Jay. At least three. The one, two, three. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, right. Three of or us plus, plus my wife. My wife <laughs> is an honest listener. Yeah. Um, but is that all of, for the vast majority of us, you always hear about the one percenters, right? One percent club, right? So on a global scale, anybody that makes over $30,000 a year, is a one percenter, gotcha. right? Yep. Okay. Or, 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 you know, household income. So these people are part of the ninety-nine percent globally. Okay, they, and I can tell you right now, the people who live in those areas make far less than that. Okay. So, with that being said, what becomes currency? in Africa is, is in a lot of these areas is meat, right? That is their currency, a bartering tool, trade mm -hmm. tool, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, and obviously for themselves. So, you know, an elephant gets hunted by a, by an international hunter and he pays a huge sum of money in order to one contract a safari company to do it legally and to adhere to all the game laws. And two, those a lot of those funds, the vast majority of those funds go to 
government uh, entities that protect the areas and or um, communities, you know, tribes. Now, in these negotiations, there is obviously the, the financial return. Then the hunting company has 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 the area, right? So what happens then? So these companies will then hire people from these villages that 99.9999% of the people world don't even know exist. Okay. Right. And um, so they'll hire staff from these villages who know the areas, who, who have an intimate relationship and, and ultimately want to care for their, their areas and their livelihood. So they get, they give jobs. They've already given money. Now when they're successful in a hunt, they now have meat and mountains of it, you know? So they then are able to distribute amongst amongst the the villages, and what generally these villages do is they'll they'll uh, cut these these animals up and dry meat out, so that they have storage for the entire year. Something that most of us don't ever have to worry about. Think about, yeah, yeah, we have to think about, right? And uh, so they store these these dried meat for the year. Uh, rehydrate it, put it in a boiling pot, put it with some, uh, I don't know, we call it sudza in Botswana, but maize meal. Meal, yeah. Yeah, meal. Maize meal. Maize meal, yeah. You know, and that becomes like, a vast like majority. Grits. Like yeah, grits. Like, like southern grits, yeah. Yeah, but that becomes a vast majority of their, of their, um, you know, consumption. Overall. So two huge, two huge fallacies that typically go along with any sort of large game, and let's just use elephants, we'll keep on an elephant topic, um, is, is it true, Jay, that the once an elephant is killed, all they do is they hack out the tusks? Absolutely and they leave. <laughs> That's ridiculous. No, that's absolutely not it. The meat is harvested for the villages and surrounding areas. And it's, it's, it's amazing how far people come from to mm-hmm. get it and, and the lengths that the hunting companies go to to provide it. You know, so, I mean, we, there was tractors uh, at uh, some of the hunting blocks that would load the whole elephant and take it to the village or take it to wherever the village wanted. And that's where the elephant would be. And that's where it would get butchered for the consumption of the entire village. And I mean, you're talking hundreds of people that live, you know, in a place that you don't think human beings could live Mm -hmm. in in a poverty level that that just surpasses anything that's beyond most most Westerns under um, people's understanding. Yeah, hundred percent. The other one that I think needs to be debunked is this: in the post by the senator out of Connecticut, in his victory speech, essentially on Instagram, he said, "We have now stopped the Connecticut trophy hunters from selling their trophies." Why would they sell their trophies? Joey, can someone sell their ivory when they bring it back? Uh, I'm not too sure on the legality of that, and I would like to not answer that question because I'm not too sure exactly how it works. What I do, I think they they can, um, but it has to stay within the state, or I don't know. They can give it away, but it has yeah, to stay yeah, within yeah. the state. I but don't I know think the way that you answered the first one was probably the most appropriate answer. Why would someone? Yeah, no. I, I, did, how much did they spend on an elephant hunt? Who knows? It, it can be. Um, tens of thousands of dollars but i mean i don't know why somebody would do it in the first place you know so right. you know i don't not sure there 
I think there's a vast just and I'm I'm gonna be uh peaceful about this. I really think there's a vast confusion that hunting and poaching are the exact same thing. And I'm not I'm not saying everyone in the world, um, but do, do you think it's possible that the senator from Connecticut thinks that his bill like there's not one person in the last 50 years in the state of Connecticut that has shot one of these species. There's not more than one. I'm allowing that there might be one that got in financial trouble and sold their trophies. But it, he, does he think he did something to prevent poaching of, of, these, of these species that he listed? I mean, is that a confusion in his mind, possibly? I don't know. I don't know what he's thinking, but but it could be. I think a lot of people confuse hunting with poaching, and and he may be one of them. I mean, I you know it's unfortunate. It's just um, it's a gray area that that people kind of happen to jump into, and I, I really don't understand how they do it. Now, I mean, I will say this is I I don't agree with um. I don't I don't agree with a lot of things and I, one but one thing I do agree with is I can see where some people don't want to hunt right I you know they're just you know I totally understand my brother for example he is totally not a hunter but values what it what it does and what it can do and how it works and I don't know how many times he's called me and uh, asked me for my opinion with me on the phone like hey will you tell these people that you know this is how it how it really is you know because they think you know everybody is you know running around you know poaching all these elephants you know and 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 it's true to a case but it's not true to the hunter right to the international hunter and and i think a lot of times that gets blurred and and the, it's and it's just the lack of knowledge because you, you you and you can't fault a lot of these people who are grown up in concrete jungles all over the United States and have never stepped out into the field, never held a white rifle. So they only know what they've been told, you know, and a lot of times what they've been told is totally wrong. And, yep. and so they need to speak to people who have actual on the boots ground experience. You know? I think, I think Robbie, there's a third misconception that, that in my opinion, isn't a misconception. It's just a flat out lie that, I mean, we get hit a lot with scientific study shows hunting leads to no economic benefit to that village, to the locals. Um, and Jay, do you have, I mean, I've, I, I know this, at least I know that where I've been, that's a lie. Like I watched them literally benefit from the operation that I hunted with. I mean, I, I saw it happen that these people, I don't want to say that they wouldn't have survived without it because I'm sure they're an incredibly hardy people, um, but they were at that time surviving off of the finances that the that the hunting operation in the area created. Can you can you speak to that a little bit, Jay? Yeah, I would definitely. Layer, though, Jay, just before you go, the other layer is corruption. We always hear mm -hmm. that layered into it is corruption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know. Third world countries are third world countries, right? So you're always, exactly. you're always, you know, you're always going to deal with, you know, issues, you know, and and some of them are foreseeable, some of them aren't so foreseeable, right? And um, 
Now, I will say that that I have personally seen, you know, hunting companies plowing fields. I have seen hunting companies drill water wells. I have seen hunting companies provide HIV and AIDS medication. I've seen hunting companies uh, because it was one of the things that I used to try to volunteer to do was take the doctor to the mining villages. If you want to see something that's humbling and you want to be humble yeah. and you want to remember how how amazing you have it in this world you know take a take a doctor with you to villages so remote that that you know um nobody like i said that no it takes hours to get there and shocked that people even live there and you'll see some things and experience some things that'll be totally life-changing and these are areas that hunting companies you know paid in order to hunt on and in part of their part of their package of being in the hunt you know them offering offering the hunting company the quota to hunt they they provide these services with these with these individuals and so it's not only financing financials uh, uh financial gain it's it's uh jobs it's it's uh meat it's you know HIV uh, medication and education and water wells and farming and you know clothing drives and donations from from clients from coming all over the world. I mean, I I, I can go on and on and on on things that I've seen, you know. And um, yes, my my answer to you would be in in a lot of these rural places. This is what they they live on, you know. And and you know you know in in a way. You know, you you as a as a hunter, you have you have a moral obligation to give back. You know, and and these areas need it. A lot of these people need it. Jay, two of the articles that we have this week, we're not going to get into them because they're pretty as as Cody. Uh, I can't hear to. you, Robbie. I see your lips moving. It's kind of better this way, isn't it? That's much. Better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Best Don't worry, ever. I'm back for for two reasons. Can't hear Robin. You can hear me. Exactly. <laughs> so All I right, know that back. you alluded to the fact that some of the articles were morbid, and we won't get into them. But two of the articles were tied to human wildlife conflict. In that one was an elephant trampling a homestead and trampling a grade one student, and the other one was a small Zimbabwe. And both of them happened to have happened to occur in Zimbabwe. Um, and one was a ball, a boy was mauled by a hyena. Um, Jay, any experiences on human wildlife conflict when you were doing it, when you were as a PH working in Africa? Well, I mean, we, we can discuss human wildlife conflict right here in our own backyards and, you know, white-tailed deer and some of these, these cities and whatnot and us hitting deer with our cars. I mean, that's human wildlife conflict. People lose right. their lives every year. So, I mean, we, we deal with it right here in our own, within our own country. And, you know, when we're talking about the United States, so, so yeah, but, but, you know, people all over the world, where there's people and there's wildlife, there's always going to be issues. Right. So, so as big as they may be, or as small as they may be, you know, and, and, in Africa, the animals just tend to be a little larger and a little more fierce, you know. Um, but yeah, I can think of of one lion that, um, and I was there. I was in camp and I was on safari, and I heard the the uh, 
staff yelling and 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 you could hear in the voice the, the angst so i dashed over there and and what had happened was a lion had come in and he was he was um chasing around the camp staff you know and and uh he disappeared and you know we couldn't find him and you know we let wildlife know about it and you know all that and I'm not sure what what ended up happening exactly i know he showed up again in the village and showed up near the school you know the same line and i'm i'm not I, you know i was too busy with our the safari that you know mm-hmm. what what happened there after i didn't follow up with but but yeah i mean i've seen it firsthand in that sense i mean i've seen so many different homes destroyed i mean that's very commonplace by elephant you know and especially water water supplies because they'll um they'll go into a village and they'll smell the water from a toilet and they'll destroy the toilet uh, and uh, try to get to the water. So, you know, there's always, always issues. And the other article, it it can, and unfortunately it can end in the loss of life, you know, Mm -hmm. over there as it does, as it does here every year. Yeah, it's weird. You know, we don't, I I like that analogy that you made because, you know, and Cody and I have talked about it before, for instance, another article this week showed that, you know, 24 people killed this year alone by wild animals in Zimbabwe. And we know we've been talking, we've talked about India, India's human wildlife conflict is off the chain. Off the chain. Um, The, um, and this article says that wild animals kill more people than COVID-19 in Zimbabwe. I'm, I don't know if I believe that headline, but it, it, it shows something though that you pointed out is that we don't really, there are a lot of people in this, in this country that die in human wildlife conflict collisions, like deer colliding with vehicles and Every stuff year. like that. We don't, we don't hear that. We'd, we'd only hear it if it was like a, a you know, a mountain lion taking out a, a human or a grizzly, right? We see, we hear that a lot. Grizzlies, I think that it's what was it, Alberta, Cody? Two grizzly bear attacks in the last six weeks, and it's it's almost like a pandemic right now. The grizzlies are out of control. Two people are dead. When and the thing that blows my mind is that how few people can correlate that to when we don't and. I'm a firm believer in the concept of habitualization that if they, if we don't allow them to recognize any threat, especially predators, if we don't allow them to recognize humans also as a predator everywhere that there is a, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make up that hunting is the silver bullet to save human wildlife comp or prevent human. It's not, but I do firmly believe that it lessens it. And it gives us an upper edge, especially with predators. If predators, bears and wolves, mountain lions here um, recognize humans as a predator, as part of the of the triangle, um, I, I think that's one way to decrease those things. Again, I'm not saying it's going to solve it, um, but it, it, to go back to the white-tailed deer thing, it blows my mind. Like, Somewhere there's a study that like 83% of Americans are at a minimum okay with hunting white-tailed deer. And I think that's largely driven by the effect that they see it having in a lot of places. Whether it's car crashes, whether it's crop depredation, whether it's they're eating grandma's flowers in the backyard. Um, but, but, you know, 
applying that principle across the Atlantic is just impossible for the vast majority of those people. Um, that the same thing is happening in another country on a, you know, 8,000 pound scale instead of a 180 pound scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that loss of connection to me blows my mind sometimes. Um, I guess, you know, it's probably because they see so many white-tailed deer, right? Like the media isn't telling them that, that there's only seven white-tailed deer left in the world. And this evil, rich white guy is going over to kill those last seven for $300,000. But um, that, that part of it is, it constantly blows my mind how we, how we as Americans are for the most part okay with the hunting we do here, um, but feel like we need to put a stop to it in Africa. I, I don't understand that. I think it's vastly species driven. You know, um, it, it, you just said, you know, it's like, like Robbie said, it, you know, two grizzlies attack people and it's, you know, the world's coming to an end, you know, and, and, and I think it's just vastly species driven. People don't associate human wildlife conflict with, you know, a mother and her two kids driving down the road and at night and a buck runs out and jumps in the middle of the road, hits it, spins them off and throws them off uh, off the side of the road and injures or kills one of them. I mean, the same thing, same result, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody died, you know? Yeah. It's absolutely. the exact same result. It's just a different place and it's a different species. So it's a species that more than anything drives the, the emotion than anything else, you know? Jay, we're getting close to the top of what of our typical a lot of time. For those people that that uh, that are listening to this that have never been to Africa, are there a couple of fallacies that you can debunk that you typically are like, yeah, you may think this, but I know I'm putting you on the spot because I didn't prep you on this one. I don't know. Well, give me a fallacy. I, I don't know. Shoot one. Or give me an idea. I mean, like you know, go ahead, Cody. I'm the. I drastically have the least amount of time, in Africa of everyone on the group here. But I got invited to go on a hunt. Wasn't really, um, you know, like Hemingway stories were, and it was because I love Hemingway, not really because of a love for Africa. It just wasn't a thing. I was a Kansas whitetail pheasant and duck and goose hunter and i got invited to go on a hunt and went because of the people that i was going with um you know i I think in the back of my mind i thought that everything was you know either in a pin or tied to a stake not literally that i just thought the hunting would be really easy that was freaking wrong i'm fat and out of shape and africa proved that to me um i think that uh Another crazy, this is a really crazy one. This is not really going to help Robbie's point. Do you know how many people told me that, that you shouldn't go to Africa because you're going to, they're going to rip you off on the taxidermy. Like that. Everyone says that everyone now is like, yeah, I'd go to Africa, but, but all the taxidermy is corrupt and you're, and that's, that couldn't be far. Like, I don't know why we think that yes, it's a third world country and there is some corruption and there's, but there's, there's also, I mean, there's corruption in the United States and we take advantage of people who don't know our ways as well when they come here, but not everyone, right? 
Um, those are the type of things. All I'd ever heard was boring hunting. The taxidermy is going to cost you $20,000 and they're going to hold it hostage or something. And um, I hunted my ass off and and got hooked. The taxidermy people took incredible care of me and it was way less than I thought it was going to be. Those are the kind of things that I think are in people's minds because someone has gone over there and been disappointed by the hunting in a certain place and got involved in a, in something corrupt. You know, we, we paint the, the entire continent that way, which those are the kind of things that, and now I can tell you that Hemingway once said, the, the thing you do at the end of your first day in Africa is start planning your next trip. I botched that quote absolutely horribly but that's exactly the position i'm in i now have dates i'm going back <laughs> good no i mean as as far as the taxidermy thing is i mean i know some people that have had absolute train wrecks and vast majority of the time are, are done well I, i'll tell you what i recommend right and and some of my friends are going to kill me for this but it is what it is um I have a tendency to recommend to my friends and clients that are going over to uh, do two things. First and foremost, uh, get everything as though you were going to get a European mount. Okay, don't don't say you're going to mount it because then they'll skull cap it, you know, and uh, then you're committed. All right, so get everything with the skull shipped over to you. Two, do the all the taxidermy work, the the mounting of it, stateside in the U.S. So get it shipped over to you, uh, salted salted hides with with the skulls. And my my logic behind this, and I've seen it several times, is by the time everything is done and the shine has kind of worn off just a little bit, and in the, that same time you're probably planning your next safari, you know the you may not really want a shoulder mount eland in your living room okay and a european mount would be much better off and you can utilize those funds you know a couple thousand bucks for fifteen hundred dollars to your next safari right so it, you're kind of pushing yourself onto your next safari without really even knowing you're doing it because you're saving all that money and um I would do that, me personally, and just do it across the board. And then you say, you know what? I do want the Impala mounted because he'll look good there. You know, the Kudu's actually too, too big, and I, I don't have the space for it. You know, and it kind of lets you sit back and think exactly what you want to do. So I think it's pretty sad that somebody would deprive themselves of one of the grandest experiences on uh, hunting experiences on Earth for the reason of an expense of taxidermy, of which could have been prevented with proper research. I got one question, Jay, um, and it's tied to elephants again. So one of the fallacies that has come out, obviously IUCN has just classified elephants as endangered. Are elephants endangered in Botswana, Jay? No. Why? I'll show you. I can show you thousand elephants tomorrow. What about Zimbabwe? Yeah. No, there's, I mean, plenty of them there yeah i mean i have zero experience in zimbabwe and i can really speak fluently only about botswana and i can tell you that that um, there is no lack of elephant in botswana it's it's incredible there were 
in our hunting blocks, we would see a thousand elephant in a day in some of them. And, you know, it was absolutely amazing. In your experience, is hunting an endangerment to elephants becoming endangered? Hunting, no. Poaching, yes. And 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 there's there's obviously a big difference. You know, hunting, you look for the most mature bulls, um, male elephant, and uh, poaching is is very um, opportunistic. You know, and, so. and quantity driven, right? You're going after one elephant, poachers are going after 600. And, you know, uh, uh, exactly. And not only that, the hunter is paying tens of thousands of dollars to be there, and the poacher is taking hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, if not more, you know, yep. Yep. what they're doing. So, and then, you know, you got to remember, they're, they're only just taking, you know, an elephant, they're taking meat livelihoods and selling ivory illegally, you know? So they're, they're taking so much more. I mean, the meat could have been utilized to the village, right? But it's left to rot. And that's what, that's what poach, poaching and poachers do. It's indiscriminate and it's reckless. Yep. Yep. 100%. Well, Jay, you've been amazing. Thank you for coming on. I know we've been trying to get this locked down for a while and, um, Thank you. We really appreciate you coming on to the roundup. Cody, any last, any last thoughts before we give Jay the final thoughts? Yeah, I, I feel like I should apologize about the Zach Galifianakis thing. It just slipped out, but um, <laughs> yeah. no, I think, uh, no, it's, a, it's, you got a great uh, story in it and uh, appreciate it. Appreciate the perspective of uh, someone that's actually been involved in it. Oh, you're very welcome, and, and thank you very much for having me on. And if you ever need anything, you always know where to shout. Well, I will say this. I'll, I'll take the final thought in that. Jay, um, you haven't seen Jay yet. You may have seen a teaser of Jay on Blood Origins, but we've got some badass teasers of Jay because he's coming on to Blood Origins episode. We've already filmed him. Um, some deer capture uh, sequencing, and um, it's a badass episode. Uh, but Jay is is actually a second node in the Blood Origins family. Blood Origins works on people connecting each other in terms of stories. We filmed Mike Axelrod and over a, a sizzling steak, I said to Mike, I said, Mike, we filmed you now. Who's next? Because there's only one person who's next, and that's Jay Ledendecker. And uh, that's how we got to meet. And uh, we had a great time in South Laredo. And uh, Jay, you are, I will say this to the entire audience. We filmed 50 people, 60 people. You were the only person who sent us a check and said, here's a contribution, use it how you would like. But thank you for coming. Thank you for taking time away from your family. Thank you for coming all the way to South Texas and, f and being with me for the weekend. And I said, I've still got your note. I sent you a picture of your note. It's, it's gonna be with me forever. And so I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Because the first time, honestly, it goes beyond that. The first time we spoke on a telephone call, you said to me, Robbie, how do we get Blood Origins funded? And son, that will, I will never forget that. <laughs> well, you've done a hell of a good job. I'll put it to you that way. I mean, you worked uh, tirelessly at it and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you. Well, thank you, man. 
All right, before we start crying, see you, everyone. Later. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.